Hello and welcome back to Spinal Cast. I'm your host, David Stevens, and joining me today is Dr. Greg Jones and Dr. Aaron Robinson. Both are medical directors with the Hennepin EMS, and uh, Dr. Greg Jones is also the medical director at the Minneapolis Fire Department. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, I, I think uh, this is going to be a little bit different for our, our viewers um, from past episodes. You know, we've really spoken with researchers. We've spoken with people who have been injured, but we haven't really spoken with anybody who's kind of there on site when, mm. when the accident takes place and when it happens. And so I think before we dive into really the nitty gritty of that stuff, I'd like to get a quick background on both of you and how you got into EMS and, you know, the ER and, and things like that. So, uh, Greg, let's start with you. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, after medical school, I, I went to, to residency, emergency medicine residency at, at HCMC. Uh, that I stuck around and did a, what's called an EMS fellowship, so advanced training, a, a subspecialty. Um, we, I mean, we both completed that that pathway, um, and then since then we've been working at at Hennepin uh, in that role, splitting time between the emergency department mm-hmm. and also in the the medical direction pre-hospital world, uh, whether that's for fire departments or Hennepin EMS, that sort of thing. Very cool. Yeah, and I don't, I didn't personally have any experience with paramedicine or pre-hospital medicine prior to coming to residency. That was just an interest I kind of got into, I'd say, first or second year in residency. And again, did the same thing uh, as Greg did and kind of went through and did subspecialty training at EMS and really liked the transition from, you know, the 911 call all the way through the hospital system to discharge. So yeah. it's, it's really interesting. Well, that it does sound interesting. I think for a lot of our viewers, it's probably confusing on, you know, where the handoffs take place and and what who is with me at what stage and and all that sort of thing so uh hopefully we'll kind of get a little more clarity around that through today's episode um so first question is you know obviously we're called spinal cast we're a podcast about spinal cord injuries and things of the like so is spinal cord injury something that you guys deal with fairly regularly is it rare um or is it pretty common uh, I mean, I think the concern for it is always there. And, and basically any sort of traumatic injury, you're always concerned about uh, the patient also having a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it comes to fruition, you know, you, you don't always find that out until you get to the emergency department and, and get, you know, advanced imaging, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always a concern whether that is from a car crash, gunshot wound, you know, a, a fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're always concerned that it is a, a potential injury along with whatever, you know, external injuries we could see. Right. Um, and so then you have to provide care not knowing if the spine is injured uh, right up front until you drop them off at the hospital. Aaron, I guess one of my questions for you then would be when you arrive on a scene, what is like the first steps to evaluating injuries and, you know, what are telltale signs that potentially spinal cord might be included or you know what what are you looking for when you first get there i think when you arrive on scene as a first responder is the overall is the scene safe and are you safe Um, and i think that's that's something that's frequently overlooked um but you got to make sure that you know whatever conditions that injured the patient are also not going to injure you um Mm -hmm. and I, i think for spinal cord injuries and stuff, is this something on the highway or is this something like a technical rescue where somebody fell down the river embankment and is on stable ground? Stuff like that is always a consideration. Um, after that, it's just kind of marching through your ABCs, airway breathing and circulation, and just 
what was the mechanism? What was the mechanism of injury? I think the interesting thing and in the the bad spinal cord injuries that I've seen aren't always tied into the mechanism. Like you don't always have to be ejected from a car going eighty miles an hour to have a spinal cord injury. I, right. I remember being initially a little fooled by somebody who had a very low mechanism, like 20 miles per hour and just kind of fell out of the car. And I don't think anybody was anticipating somebody to have a really bad cervical spine injury from that. Right. Um, and it turns out he did. So I think just always having it as a high index of suspicion and just doing that as part of your scene size of evaluation. So I, I think the important thing that we were talking about before is we, talk about spinal precautions and C collars and backboards and everything like that. Um, and that is very important in spinal cord injury. When somebody has a spinal cord injury, the majority of them happen overwhelmingly at time of injury. So mm-hmm. whenever the, you know, the car accident occurred or it was a sporting injury, whatever happened, right. um, and we have to balance that with trying to get the patient out and into a safe, you know, get them to the hospital. Right. Mm-hmm. Because from, previous guests we've we've learned that there is a very kind of short period of time between the time of the spinal cord injury and when it needs to be kind of um i guess what i would call like uh um approached or dealt with um Mm -hmm. in order to not have super outrageously severe effects um and so that's interesting to hear and to your point you know in another one of our episodes i've heard stories of people who have broken their neck doing a slip and slide Mm -hmm. so uh it's true that it definitely does not need to be an 80 mile an hour car crash to to cause it um so when when you do get there um and let's say you're you're being precautious for a potential spinal cord injury what is the what are kind of the steps that you guys use to ensure that you don't further a spinal cord injury i know you mentioned c collars and and backboards and stuff but are you know are there other specific kind of tricks of the trade as it were yeah, I mean, I think the the most common one is either, you know, one of the first responders holding the C-spine, so holding the head so it's not moving anymore. That's the first step, right, even before you put on a C-collar. C-collar just helps with that. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, like for, for the, you know, the guys I work with on the fire department, they show up with, you know, a, a team of three or four. One of them in a trauma will start holding the head initially, right? Mm-hmm. It's nice, too, that person can also just start talking to the patient. Right. Uh, getting some history. Hey, man, what happened? That sort of thing, you know. Um, if, if they need to do some, some you know, breathing, they can also keep a, a good eye on airway and the breathing of that patient because they're right there by the, the head, right? Right. Um, and so that's the first step. Then you work on getting them into a C-collar. And more or less, that also helps kind of remind the patient not to move their head back right. and forth. And then it reminds everyone else that responds on scene that, hey, we're concerned about a potential C-spine or neck injury on this patient. So mm-hmm. it's kind of also a, a visual clue for everyone else that's responding to this call. Right. Um, I, I suppose that makes sense because yeah. there's probably 20-odd people there. Absolutely, right? A, like generally, accident. fire shows up first. Mm-hmm. And then the paramedics will show up you know, shortly after that. Um, and so instead of having to tell everyone that shows up, hey, this is what's going on, mm-hmm. um, that's one less thing they have to pass along. So that's a question I've always had is why, why does it seem that the fire department always arrives first? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. So are they just sitting around waiting to, to yeah. go and, uh, no, yeah, kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny cause there's a, a pretty famous and cliche saying in EMS that if, if you've seen one EMS service, you've seen one EMS service, 
meaning that across the country, they're all kind of set up and run differently. Even mm-hmm. across and, the metro. Uh, even across, yeah, right? If you go across the river to St. Paul, they're what's called a fire-based, right? Fire-based EMS service. Well, here in the West Metro, we're a third service, right? So you have police, fire, then EMS as a separate entity. Oh, okay. Um, and so it's a little bit different. And, and fire stations or fire departments have the luxury of, of just uh, years and years, centuries of like structure. They are set up kind of strategically throughout the city in, in areas uh, that have higher levels of call, that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and they track all that where if there's, hey, there's a lot more calls in this neighborhood, but we don't have a firehouse here, maybe that's where they'll put funding in for the uh, new firehouse. Right. Um, or they'll staff the closest firehouse with, with double the fire engines, that sort of stuff. Um, and so they are always responding from a fixed position, right? They, they do a call, then they go back to their fire station, mm-hmm. then they respond to the next call. Right. Uh, for our third service EMS um, group, they do a little bit more driving around based on where the most likely next call will come from based on how many available ambulances we have at that time. Got it. So if we are down to one truck left, every other truck's you know providing care for patients or transport to the hospital, uh, dispatch will then assign that truck to you know a certain spot in the metro. Mm-hmm with the theory that it can respond basically to the entire metro within the same amount of time. Got um, it. And so that's why it sometimes takes a little bit longer. And, and there's generally a lot more fire engines on at a time than there are ambulances. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you know, but they also have double duty, right? Not only are they helping with all the medicals that happen in Minneapolis and the surrounding areas, but they're also fighting fires. Right. Um, and so they have exactly. that kind of double duty, right? So if you have someone from Station 8 that's on a medical and then there's a fire in that area, right, you have to be able to have the resources to go fight that fire. And so that's why fire departments are just set up a little bit differently than, than a third service EMS service. Very interesting. Yeah. And it might be that, you know, the uh, medics just let fire get there first and do some of the heavy lifting before <laughs> <laughs> before they get there, you know? I hear you. I hear you. Well, so kind of going back to um, when you get on the scene and there's potential spinal cord injury and things like that, this kind of got me thinking, you know, um, people who are paraplegic or have lost, you know, control or movement in their legs, is there potential for people when they do get spinal cord injuries to further injure themselves trying to get out of the scenario that they're in? Um, Or I I guess the way I'm thinking about it is if I was in a car accident, I would do everything I could to get out of a burning car or something. Mm -hmm. And if I've broken my back, I don't know, am I potentially going to injure myself further? I mean, adrenaline is a very powerful thing um, and it has pain numbing effects on purpose, right? That's how we biologically were designed to to allow you to get away from something dangerous like a burning car on fire. Um, I think for most patients that I've seen with potential spinal cord injuries, unfortunately, the biggest thing that can be an obstruction to care is themselves. And generally it's when it involves alcohol. Mm. I I don't, if alcohol didn't exist, I think you and me would be out of a job to be honest. Um, because there would just be many less calls, but when patients are intoxicated or head injured and we're worried about a spinal cord injury, when they're kind of they don't know where they are or they're you know they just they have some type of head injury and they're confused and they get combative sometimes that can be really dangerous if they have a spinal cord injury of themselves right um so that i I less see people try to i haven't seen too many injuries of people trying to get out of something and injuring yeah i think usually like if if they're 
not under the influence of alcohol or other substances, you know, like they'll feel the pain and most people will, you know, self splint like, Oh man, my neck hurts. I don't want to move it around. Yeah. Type thing. So, and I, th- I think that's protective, another kind of built in protective mechanisms. The problem is, is when they also smack their head or they're altered from alcohol or, or any other substance, then they're not thinking like they normally would. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's when it could potentially get dangerous or you're in a situation where like it or not, I have to, I have to save myself, right? I mean, like this car's on fire or I'm in the middle of the river. Right. And, but yeah, my neck hurts, but I have to get from here to the bank. Or, or I'm out going of this to car. die. Right. Yeah. Or it's going to get much worse. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the sobering thing with this is the, the people that have just isolated spinal cord injuries, like, and when I say just, I mean, in, like in terms of their trauma, they don't have any other major trauma. So they're generally with it. Yeah. They, they, when they come in, um, they have a very just, I think they know, you yeah. know, and that's, I think that's been the really kind of sad thing is you talk to them and they, they nod and they, um, they communicate with you, but in the, in the back of both our minds, like, you know, they know that there might be a significant injury right. at, at play. And this um, is lasting. It's not something that's right, going you know, away when they, soon. Yeah, when they say, I can't feel anything below my chest or whatever, like, I think they, you know, they're aware of the implications that that means. Right. Yeah. So one of the questions that I was wanting to ask when I found out we were going to interview you guys is, is more so for the viewers. Let's say I'm at a cabin with a bunch of buddies, and I notice somebody potentially sustain an injury they dough off the dock mm-hmm. you know we talked about that earlier or, or what have you and i i come across someone who i based on all the scenarios i think a neck injury might be involved as a person who doesn't have an ems team with me obviously calling for you guys is mm-hmm. step one um but what are some you know tactics that the common man like yeah. myself would be able to utilize and try and do something that would be helpful um and or is it like just leave them alone. You're not helpful. <laughs> what, yeah. is, what, what is kind of the general consensus on that? I think it's a good question. Um, and, you know, like it or not, you're up at the cabin. EMS is going to be a minute getting there. Right. Um, so you, you, you're going to have to do something, right? And so generally speaking, if, if they dove in off of a dock, just to kind of play along with that, that, you know, super fit or, uh, you know, make-believe patient, mm-hmm. um, chances are it's their neck that's fractured, right? And and the higher on the spine it goes, the potentially worse it is, right, from level of paralysis. Um, and so I think they're not going to be able to get themselves out of the water. So the mm-hmm. first step, right, if they drown, then it's the, the spine injury isn't that important, right? Uh, Correct. So the first step will be to get them out of the water. And, and I think there's, there's a lot of kind of training that, that our, our paramedics will go through to get people out of the water safely. Uh, but for the layperson, I'd say if you, if you could get them up to where they can breathe, you got to do that first. Otherwise, nothing else will really matter. Right. So get them out of the way, get their head out of the water. And then if you can float them on their back towards the bank, that's ideal. Okay. Um, allowing them to you know keep breathing the whole time. Um, you know, whenever you rescue someone in the water, it can potentially be a, a scary situation for the rescuers also. Yeah. Um, like, let's say they're still moving their arms right now. They're grabbing for you and you're trying to swim and... So you should be kind of cognizant of that. We have, you know, flotation devices, all that sort of stuff. But right. if you get someone to the bank on their back, they're breathing okay. I think you've done a, a ton of work already. The next step that you need to start thinking about is, well, how far can the ambulance get to me? Mm. And is there a way that we can put this person on a, you know, picnic table 
and carry them a little bit closer to the road, whatever. Like, so start kind of thinking about that sort of stuff. Um, it's really easy to just call 911 and then you're like, they're like, all right, what's your address? You're like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, what road are you on? I'm like, I, I don't know that either. What beach are you at? I don't, uh, again, I don't know. So like right. just knowing those sort of things in the back of your head is helpful, I think, when right. you are all of a sudden thrust into an emergency. Um, but if you can do a couple basic things, like biggest one would be get them out of the water or get them, you know, to a safer place, right? If it's a car crash, uh, you know, light up the road as best you can. Uh, if, if they're in the car and the car appears safe, just leave them in the car. Okay. You know, make sure they're warm. You know, in this, in this state, it's always, you know, carrying extra blankets or a sleeping bag in your car. It's not a bad idea. So you can help people stay warm because that'd be another thing. Uh, hypothermia and trauma is always bad. Yeah. Um, and it happens even in summer uh, around here. Like, you know, you're laying on concrete or you just pull, got pulled out of the lake, you know, that sort of thing. I think right. hypothermia. So just thinking about that sort of stuff, just real simple things that you can help, you know, potentially, you know, save this person's life or just a better outcome overall. Right. Yeah. I think don't be afraid to move the patient if they're in danger. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. In the lake, face down, you know, or in the middle of the road on a hill where it's a blind hill, mm-hmm. like you, you, you have to move them. And I think that's, that's okay um, yeah. to get them to safety. Absolutely. Basically, take the steps to ensure that the life isn't lost. Mm-hmm. Right. But try and be mindful once you do get them out of, you know, uh, the death threat. Mm-hmm. And then be mindful about what your next steps are so that yeah. you're being as helpful as you can to the teams that are going mm-hmm. to arrive and, and things like that. Yeah, and clearing, clearing like how is an ambulance going to get down here? Is everybody parking in? Like, is there, can we clear a path somehow? Can we send somebody, if we're at a cabin in the middle of nowhere, for example, send somebody up to the end of the driveway to flag people down, mm-hmm. everything, all of that helps. Um, especially when it's nighttime and it's hard to see or visualize and there's equal planning on the EMS and fire side of things. And you know, Greg can speak more to this too, about like the, the rescues and stuff, but we have every summer, a number of people that, um, fall down the ravine or injure themselves that way or you know unfortunately some people do fall off like the bridge or something into the water Mm -hmm. um and even though it's like there's a road right there and then the edge of the ravine we have to think about what's the safest way to extricate this patient without Mm -hmm. one causing further harm and two not putting our rescuers at risk right so i mean before we've we've had cases where patients have been on the side of the the ravine at the very bottom but instead of hoisting them up up the the grade it's having um hennepin county sheriff who have the water rescue boat and we'll pick them up there and then we'll take them to uh like a boat dock somewhere um, where an ambulance is waiting so all of that stuff kind of comes into play um and in a rural setting you might have the helicopter come yeah depending on how bad the injury sounds well so that leads me to another question what when typically do helicopters get communicated to like when like at what point are you like all right this is a helicopter yeah in a metro in a metro setting probably never Mm -hmm. um it would be really exceptionally rare because we're so close via ground to a trauma center Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but we've both in our fellowship days um did some moonlighting up north at hospitals that were you know three hours away four hours away from a major trauma center um and speaking with those folks up there for EMS, if the mechanism sounds bad enough, they will actually auto launch the helicopter. Mm. Um, mm. So, hey, we've got a bad rollover MVC, multiple people are ejected. Like yeah. just on that, based on 911 call alone, the helicopter will take off and start heading to that scene. And EMS might get there and they say, oh no, everybody's like fine and they can cancel, or the helicopter will come and help render aid and 
bring the sickest people to take a level one trauma center. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, a helicopter needs a hundred feet by a hundred feet landing zone. Right. And there's very few of those in the Metro. Right. <laughs> and, and based on like just the amount of ambulances and the amount of hospitals that are saturated within the Metro area, uh, using a helicopter in Minneapolis just isn't, there's no, there's no need for yeah. it. Right. Like you could probably actually drive faster than you could land a helicopter and then fly it. Yeah. Um, but you start getting out even into some of the outer suburbs of, of the Metro and they'll use helicopters, you know, uh, Anoka, that sort of stuff. Um, but then, yeah, like like Aaron was saying, you get out into the, the more outstate areas and, you know, what would be a three and a half hour transport is now 20 minutes. So as far as the ambulances that that you utilize in, in responding to calls. One of the questions that I've, I've always posed this to people more because I think it's an interesting social experiment, but now I'm going to get the actual answer <laughs> I've always been searching for. <laughs> when I see an ambulance with its lights on mm. and its siren going, my natural inclination is that they are going to someone. I naturally believe that they're going to the scene where the injury is taking place. The reason my brain thinks that way, I'm not positive. I guess I think it's like a hospital on wheels. Once they get there, hopefully they can get them, Mm -hmm. you know, steady and then get them back to the hospital without needing the lights on. But generally, if the lights are on and the siren is going, would you say the majority of the time they have patient in in the vehicle or is it really 50-50? It's... Yeah, I would say the a lot of our we have in part of our job as medical direction is is triaging um, complaints, right? And writing pro and we can't be doing that twenty four seven. So our dispatchers who are, uh, have medical training up to the EMT level do a really good job of trying to triage that with like, you know, we get five nine one one calls all at once. How are we gonna, like who are we going to send the closest one to, and who can we wait to send from mm-hmm. you know, be a little bit farther away? Yeah. So. The majority of our 911 calls do go out lights and sirens, but the lower acuity complaints, um, they can they don't need lights and sirens. Like, right? I stubbed my toe. Yeah. Somebody calls 911 for that. People have. Yes. Uh, that doesn't need an ambulance in two minutes ripping lights and sirens because it's what people also don't realize is that driving lights and sirens is very inherently dangerous mm-hmm. and it puts providers and patients at risk. Mm. Mostly, like the most common thing is through intersections. Um, it also puts the public at and risk. And it puts the public right. at risk, public right? At risk. Uh, so we try to minimize the use of lights and sirens and keep those for those really high acuity calls. I'd say a lot of our calls go out lights and sirens, but only a fraction, um, I think maybe a fifth, like 15, 20% return to the hospital lights and sirens. Yeah. So, and spinal cord injury would absolutely, that's, you know, right. hard, like license sirens, we're going to the hospital, we're going to, like part of that would be going to a level one trauma center. Got so it. in here it would be Hennepin or North Memorial. Yeah, and I'd assume like if you see an ambulance going lights and sirens or a fire, fire engine, any of those, that they are either responding to an emergency or transporting an emergent patient back to a hospital emergently. Right. Uh, and so you should always do your best to get out yeah, of the way. absolutely. Right? Pull over to the right, and don't just stop. Generally, right. <laughs> generally what is, is recommended is you pull over to the right because uh, emergency vehicles will tend to hug towards the middle of the road. Right. Um, just so they have more maneuvering room. Uh, and it's shocking, I always assumed that was known by everyone in the world. Uh, it is not. Uh, uh, unfortunately, don't, don't get... <laughs> I recognize that it is not yeah. by other people on just the road. Just stop, stopping like dead on the highway in the middle lane. I've yeah. had that happen, and yeah. just uh, it's yeah. Yeah, and I understand it's. Yeah, I think it's stressful. People just freeze, and all of a sudden they look in their rearview mirror and they see right, you know, a bunch of flashing lights and this you know horn screaming at them. So 
can't be stressful. I, I can I can only imagine. So that kind of goes back to timing. So let's say someone does sustain a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. How much of a factor is time from the moment the injury takes place to the moment they need to be back in the trauma center, trauma one center, or however you refer to it, in which they need to be, you know, mm-hmm. getting looked at. Is there a, is time a big play in that, or is it not as as important as it might sound? It depends a lot on the injury. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, within trauma, so you're kind of categorizing people into two things. It's like your trauma patients and your medic, we call medical patients, strokes, heart attacks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they've looked at this over time as EMS has developed, and like the longer, the longer you spend on scene with a critical trauma patient, the worse they do, um, because like we do stuff like airway stabilization and a couple of other things and getting IV access and stuff. But ultimately what a trauma patient needs is a, is a trauma center and an emergency medicine physician or a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Um, With medical patients, it's actually pretty much the opposite. And we, you know, staying on scene to stabilize somebody or, or doing some interventions were a lot more than just like a, a, a medium that gets you to the hospital. We do, critical care and airways and IVs and a ton of different medications deliver babies that, that those patients benefit from staying on scene and getting stabilized initially. Right. So to answer your question is in terms of time and trauma, I think it's important and and our medics are really good about doing the initial stabilization on scene and addressing like immediate life threats that need to be done now. But after that, it's like we're getting off scene and we're going, we're getting into the hospital. Um, cause it, yeah, it, it depends. And I think with, with spine injuries specifically, it's a little bit tougher because a lot of big big traumas, right, like the spine might be severed. Right. And, and, and honestly, time's not going to fix that. Uh, like if we get them there 10 minutes faster, the let's say like just a, a good example, a, a gunshot wound, right? It goes through the, the back and causes paralysis from there down. That's not going to be one that that is generally like fixable, you know, 10 right. or 15 minutes isn't going to make or break it. The problem is, is that bullet also traveled through the abdomen to get through the back. Uh, and that's what they need to get to the hospital right. now for, with, you know, their internal bleeding. Right. You know, it also tore up their liver, whatever. And that's the sort of thing that, that needs to be addressed now as opposed to in 10 minutes. Right. Um, and then after that life threat has been dealt with in the operating room. Uh, then they'll start kind of transitioning, you know, to the spinal cares and stuff like that. Uh, there are some injuries that the sooner, some spinal cord injuries that the sooner it's noticed, uh, there are ways to fix that. Mm-hmm. It's usually, you know, higher neck injury stuff. Like uh, there's a, one injury, like a perch facet. If you can put the neck in traction reasonably quick, you can have uh, a pretty decent outcome uh, and, and regain uh some of the sensation and motor ability yeah. um, lower in the body. So, so that's uh, a, one that would be beneficial to get there sooner rather than later. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the things that we mentioned before we started recording, you guys talked about doing a lot of training for mm-hmm. future EMS and other people who are, are working in kind of emergency situations. Have you changed the way that you train for spinal cord injuries has has things changed in the time that you've worked in ems has there been um additions to the training as far as spinal cord injuries concerned has it been consistent the whole time um 
I think the the biggest change has actually probably been a it's it's probably kind of counterintuitive like as we've learned more uh back in like the 80s and 90s backboards were like all the rage right mm-hmm. any sort of trauma like if we went, when we leave here and Aaron slips and falls on the ice <laughs> in the 80s and 90s he'd be strapped you know to a full length spine backboard right? and on TV they still and, do and it on TV. TV they still do it they yep. used to teach this thing called the standing takedown so let's say Aaron slipped on the ice and then he stood up and he's like, oh, man, will you call an ambulance? I call an ambulance for him. They would stand a backboard up next to him, strap it to him and then lay him down. And then we realized, like, all these things are like, kind of not necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he had hurt his back or, or something like that, hurt his spine, he would probably either just be still on the ground or splinting it himself in a, in a position of comfort where it wouldn't cause more damage. So as they've researched that, our governing body is called the National Association of EMS Physicians. Uh, they did a lot of work with the um, uh, the surgeon group. ACS, yeah, American, a- College, yeah, of American College of Surgeons. American College of Surgeons, thank you. Uh, and they looked into backboards and they realized that backboards were actually in a lot of situations causing more problems than they were actually helping. Um, I don't know if you've ever laid on a backboard for more than five minutes. It's the most uncomfortable thing you can imagine. I have not, luckily, yeah. <laughs> but I can only imagine they. I mean, yeah. they and sound imagine, uncomfortable. Imagine you hurt <laughs> so. your back. You hurt your back, and now I lay you on this horrible board, like right? a concrete floor. Right. Yeah, just yeah. lay down on this floor, um, and then not move at all. So they've realized that you know it was starting to cause you know injuries to the skin where there, there was kind mm. of pressure pressure spots. Uh, it increased the amount of uh, unnecessary imaging that ER doctors would get. Um, and it honestly didn't help all that much. Uh, there are obviously caveats to that, right? If, hey, I can't move my legs. All right, that person's going on a backboard. Right. Um, or the person like we talked about earlier that is intoxicated with alcohol and not making great decisions and has a, a mechanism of injury that you'd be concerned enough for a spine injury, that person's going on a backboard. Right. Um, but more often than not, we use the backboard as an extrication tool not necessarily a sp- spinal immobilization tool. So that's that's something I was gonna, uh, basically, that's exactly what I was going to say. One of the sh- few shows that I, I find myself watching on occasion is Northwoods Law. I know a lot of people don't necessarily watch Northwoods Law, but it's up, <laughs> they're up in Maine, like okay. out in the woods in Maine, and they're, you know, it's like six police officers for the whole county. Right. Um, and it kind of follows them, but there's a lot of injuries that they come across that are in uh, hiking um, mm-hmm. and they're up in the mountains and how do we get this person down she just shattered her femur mm-hmm. and we gotta get her out and so they use backboards as a way of navigating that person right. out but it's not you know to keep her straight and right. level it's mm-hmm. how do we pick you up and carry you out um, and so I could see how that yeah. how that would kind of come in th- there's a there's a whole bunch of different like there's the normal backboards there's like Stokes baskets there's a whole bunch of different things that are used for extrication uh, we do a lot of task force training or, or urban search and rescue where, you know, I'm a, one of the medical directors for the, the Minnesota team. And that's a lot of like confined space rescue. Mm-hmm. And so you'll put someone on a backboard to basically, you know, drag them out of a tunnel. So you're not twisting them at every bend and curve and stuff like that. Right. Um, but sometimes you have to, right? Otherwise we can't get this person out of this rubble pile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes you have to get a little creative on how you safely move patients, navigate them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess one last question um, would be, 
it's a basic one. If there was anything that you could communicate to an audience of, of people who are, are genuinely interested in, in your job and what you do and how we can be better citizens for EMS as a whole, mm. um, outside of obviously pulling over to the right and yeah. slowing down <laughs> and, and things like that, is there something that you think would just be valuable to share with people um, before before we take off? Yeah, I, I think learning a little bit of basic emergent medical care uh, should be a requirement for everyone in the world. Uh, whether that's, you know, CPR, uh, you know, basic, like uh, stop the bleed type stuff, mm-hmm. um, helping people with, you know, neck injury, that sort of thing. I think if you educate yourself, and there's courses out there that you can do in one day, two day courses that are not all that expensive. I think there's a lot of them that are probably given for free, especially CPR related stuff. Um, I think educating yourself on that sort of thing uh, because you never know when it's going to be your family member or your friend, like up at the cabin or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you feel real awkward if you're like, ah, I was too lazy to go to that half day course on CPR. I really wish I would have. Right. Like, absolutely. I think it's one of those things where a little bit of education could potentially save uh, someone's life is, is kind of a big deal. Um, and so that'd be my big push is if people are like, hi, ah, they just need that final push. Hopefully that's m- me saying this. We'll push them in that direction. Perfect. Yeah, it doesn't have to be extensive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, simple, simple is relatively speaking, I understand. But, you know, those first couple of minutes, like what can, and it makes a huge difference, mm-hmm. right? When people act on scene and either start CPR right away or, you know, get this patient to safety or whatever, like they're, that makes all the difference, like life or death sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like bystander care, uh, saves lives. Uh, you know, it right. might hold it off for five minutes while the the paramedics show up, and, and that's a, a big deal. Well, even uh, MCPF's founder, uh, Peter Morton, who you guys had the opportunity to meet, mm-hmm. when he got injured, his brother performed CPR for an abnormal amount of time because they were biking and actually in a place that was very difficult for EMS mm-hmm. to get to. And so they had to kind of buy time before they were able to get there. And obviously Peter was unable to, in, uh, unable to breathe given his injury. Mm-hmm. And so it was CPR that ended up, you know, keeping him alive. And so I, I applaud that, that answer. I think it's a perfect answer. I can honestly say I will try my best to find <laughs> one of those free classes and, uh, you know, get myself signed up. Cause I think, uh, I think that's great advice. So. Yeah. We keep it simple, right? I mean, there's no longer like can you feel for a pulse is there a pulse or like you know are it's just you know the when the dispatchers talk to somebody through 911 it's like are they conscious no are they breathing no start cpr done there's no feeling for a pulse there's not it's just like straight to cpr um and if they need cpr awesome if they need cpr to breathe that will help them breathe a little bit if they don't need cpr they're going to tell you yeah, yeah, and, um, and, they, and the, the, the like, big push is, you know, yeah. it is <laughs> like, they say, hey, people. I'll knock it off. And it's like, okay, that's totally, breathe. but that is way better than somebody who's like, oh, I don't know if they're breathing or not and not right. doing CPR. Because that's the other thing too, is there's a big push for hands only CPR, right? The mouth to mouth thing has gone away. Mm-hmm. You know? I'll probably only give mouth to mouth to probably three people in the world and none of them are in this room. Oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so I think that just learning the hands only CPR uh, basically just pumping on the chest yeah. is, is the way to go. I guess I didn't even know that there was a, a type of CPR that didn't include mouth to mouth. I yeah. think 
it's been televised and, mm-hmm. and promoted that that's the only CPR out there. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, is it helpful? Yes, right. You know, obviously, if, if we're breathing for people with a breathing device, uh, that's ideal. But right. like I said, we don't expect people to go put their mouths on strangers' mouths. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Especially if they don't look necessarily like someone I'd like to put right. my mouth on. Yeah. I mean, I like, totally imagine giving me mouth to mouth, right? Like, <laughs> not that many people would sign up for I mean, that. I like <laughs> you, Greg. I like you quite a bit, but uh, we might forego that one. Yeah, right. Well, honestly, it's been awesome having you guys on the podcast. I hope uh, it was fun and interesting for you as well. Uh, I think our audience will obviously get a lot out of this, um, you know, discussion and just learning more about first responders. Um, so everybody, thank you for watching. If, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit the uh, subscribe button, maybe a like, you know, that sort of thing. Share it with people. Uh, if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, you can always, you know, give us a follow. Um, but other than that, thank you again for joining us. And I, uh, I look forward to seeing you guys again soon. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks.